Aloha, this is Catherine Cruz. It's Aloha Friday, January 26th. Mahalo for joining us. Hawaii Talks on the conversation. This month marks a year since Hawaii U.S. Congressman Jill Takuda took office, and what a year it has been. She talks Maui wildfires and politics. We also talk invasive species and about Hawaii's farming future. What priorities will stay at the top of the legislative agenda this year? And we celebrate the inventor of the Braille Code and talk technology to help not just the visually impaired, but library patrons across the country and the globe. Plus, who thinks the Beatles are an obscure old band? Well, an award-winning Hawaii Maori musician shares why he saw them that way and how they influenced his music. You're tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii U.S. Congresswoman Jill Takuda marks her first year in office. We got a chance to sit down with her yesterday afternoon between her trips to Kauai, the Big Island, and Maui while she's back home from Washington, D.C. She represents the 2nd Congressional District, which includes a part of Oahu and uh, the neighbor islands. Takuda reflected on the adjustment from being a state senator to a U.S. representative in this first year and the work ahead in 2024. It's a lot to take in, you know, in terms of what the last 12 months have looked like. And so much has happened during that time. And and while challenging on so many levels, both nationally and locally, right, right here at home, so much has happened. You know, I am grateful that, you know, I have been there to be able to advocate and push for all the things that are important for our constituency to be back home and be present when people needed us to be that bridge, that warm hand to help them in so many ways. And so it's definitely been challenging, but I just appreciate the opportunity to be able to serve during what is a very tenuous time for our country and our our local community right here in Hawaii. Yes. And, you know, you came back to be with the Maui community, Mm -hmm. you know, after this disaster. And we are coming up on the six-month anniversary. And, you know, we are where we're at now. Mm -hmm. But, oh, my gosh, we just want to get those families into permanent housing. Yeah. You know, I I mean, I think we need to reflect on just some of our most basic needs, what makes us feel safe, what makes us feel secure. It's knowing we have a roof over our head, being able to put food on the table, knowing that our children are okay, they have access to healthcare, mental health services, you know, all of these things. Where will they go to school? It's come down to so many basic, basic needs that we need to make sure with urgency we take care of for our people. And so that's what I've really been quadrupling down on to make sure from the federal level, we're doing everything we can with urgency to make sure that they have those assurances. I talked to someone from Maui the other day and they said, you know, people are preparing to move out of those hotel rooms. And one mother was like, gosh, my son has been in this room for five months and, yeah. you know, it, it's an adjustment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, saying goodbye to that hotel room because that was home for a long time. Well, just think of everything that they've been through. And what we want to do is minimize revictimizing people in so many ways, right? The trauma comes back fresh every time you're packing up what little possessions you have compared to where you were before the fires and having to move again. And so it is essential that we really think about the stability for people, the permanence. It's not even really permanence, but you know whatever level of permanence we can provide them when it comes to housing, where they can start to feel like home again. And for myself, it really is about two things. One, can we put shovels in the ground? You know, and I, I was on the floor of Congress the other week for my Maui Minute talking about how we need to lean in. FEMA and every part of the federal government needs to lean in to provide more shovels in the ground, more permanent housing and infrastructure, because the reality is we will always need more places for our people to live, not just in 18 months, but in the months and the years to come as well. And so, you know, building up those temporary residences that we are looking at from the FEMA perspective that will house up to 500 families. We've got to we've got to work hard on that, that kind of housing infrastructure we need to build up. But the second thing also is when we think about people's security and, and feeling safe and secure, so many of these individuals are holding on to mortgages that no longer have a home and they're looking at their finances and they may not have jobs right now. Those jobs may have been lost in the fire. They may not be ready to quite go back to work in many situations. And so really providing that mortgage relief, feeling like you've got options to be able to pay an existing mortgage for a home that no longer exists and knowing where home is for you and your family. 
we've got to act with urgency to address these things so that people don't start to make um, the impossible decision to leave. Well, you know, we did talk with FEMA recently, and I asked about the numbers of how many families are we talking about, you know, that are getting rental assistance for a place away from Maui, whether it's mm-hmm. in Vegas or Oahu. And at the time, you know, the numbers, you know, we're small, just, you know, a half dozen or so, but right. you kind of worry about that. You do, because uh, in many cases, we may just not know the full impact in terms of how many people um, are leaving. I mean, think about the housing situation in general in Lahaina. We had a lot of renters. We had a lot of folks, just like every community in Hawaii, living with family. Um, And so really, truly getting a handle on how many people that called Lahaina home are still around and ready to move back to Lahaina when we're able to rebuild versus how many are being placed outside or have made that decision to to up and leave. And I've talked to many individuals. I've talked to some that were in California and they relocated there. Fortunately, they had family. They had the ability to go there. But they're telling me we're running into other folks from Lahaina right here in California. And so this was months ago, by the way. This is not even recently. And so we know that there has been displacement. We just have to make sure that our families know that there are options um, and so that they can either come home or they can remain here to the fullest extent possible. Do you have a better grip on numbers at all? I, I wish I had. And that is something I think we've really got to to also work hard on is to really understand the data. You know, who are... You know, who are we dealing with in terms of rental assistance? Who are living with other individuals? What kind of individuals are dealing with with mortgages? In many cases, we might be able to help if it's a local bank or if it's a, a federal agency like a Fannie or Freddie. That's where we can definitely help provide support. But in some situations, we're dealing with folks with other mainland mortgage holders. And, and that's where it becomes very difficult to find some kind of relief and reprieve. And so data on who we need to help what the community of Lahaina really looks like so that we can start to target our support, target help and relief in many different ways. That's going to be um, something we've got to continually work to do better on in terms of data collection and then targeting relief and support with the data we know. And then are you in agreement with the governor on his plan to come down with a big stick on a moratorium on short-term rentals if he needs to? You know, the governor's in a very difficult situation right now in terms of how he really frees up that particular inventory. At the end of the day, we need to really make sure that the housing lots that we have, the units that we have here, for myself, selfishly, I want to make sure that it's filled with local people and it's available for local individuals as well. And we've got to do everything we can, not just on Maui, by the way, in every single community There is a lack of affordable housing. In fact, I tell people affordable housing doesn't exist anymore in Hawaii. We've got to start looking at housing people can afford. And it's not just young families with children. Our kupuna are being completely priced out in so many ways of being able to rent or be able to find a home here. And so uh, we have got to step back and take a 30,000 foot level and then start acting with urgency on how we're going to make sure that with the land that we actually have, How are we making sure that housing units are available for the people who need it, from young families to kapuna to workforce housing? In so many parts of our state right now, when I fly to Molokai or if I'm in Lai, you know, I was just in Hilo, as I mentioned yesterday, they can't even have doctors come or nurses come or teachers come to work or to stay where they, they grew up because they can't afford the rent there. So we're talking of individuals who make life possible for all of us not even being able to find a home for themselves or their families to be able to to work in the place they grew up in many cases or would like to live and serve. And, you know, uh, as we pause to think of where Lahaina is, I know a number of officials have said, you know, we have to start thinking about when when FEMA leaves, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. then maybe, what, another six months, a year you know, and, and we have to stand up uh, for our people because yeah. they're going to need help. Absolutely. You know, this is, um, we, we never like to think that there will be an end to help. But the reality is that even for the federal support, it will come in waves. Uh, and so where FEMA may leave or that support may taper off, that's where HUD then comes in with disaster relief. That's when you look at small business. I mean, there's so many levels of support. And that's why really I think we have got to take to heart and really um, continue to aggressively remind um, folks at the federal level that this is a whole of government approach. 
And this is not just an emergency situation. This is going to be about years and generations of support that we all need to pitch in. We have a collective responsibility to support both Maui and our Lahaina community. And so that's why, like I said, for myself, I literally take to the floor every week we're in session, I do my Maui Minutes talk about different things. Last week was mortgages and housing and urgency on building in this particular regard. Next week when we're back, I'm going to talk about the Unity March that we all participated in last Saturday and what that meant to come together. Um, we'll talk about the six-month anniversary and where we stand. You know, I've talked about all kinds of different um, issues around Maui, partly just to remind my colleagues and the administration and everyone at the federal level that while so much has happened since the fires, Literally, wars have broken out, other natural disasters, political strife. Never forget our collective responsibility to provide a whole of government approach, response, and you know, level of help uh, to Lahaina. What kind of reaction have you been getting uh, from your uh, colleagues on Mono Minute? I mean, Mono Minute, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice one. We'll do a Mono Minute too. <laughs> I like yeah, that. The Maui Minute. Yeah. You know, it was really sweet. Right before we left, I had. Um, you know, a, a colleague come up and, and she told me, she's from New Mexico, Teresa Ledger Fernandez. She came up and said, you know, I love it because every time I'm in my office and I look up at my TV and we're doing our one minute speeches, I see you with the your Maui Minute board um, reminding us of, of what we need to do and what's going on there. So she's like, you know, I love that you've got that commitment to, to Maui. And, you know, actually, you know, I have another colleague who represents, you know, Paradise and oftentimes he will be speaking, uh, and Republican, he'll be speaking about Paradise and the Fires five years ago. And oftentimes I will come up shortly after talking about, about Maui. And so for many colleagues, you know, they'll come up to me after, ask how it's going, you know, what can they do to help? Um, and I do think it helps to be able to always have that poster up there uh, and just remind people that there are still people very much hurting, needing to heal. And this is going to be a long-term commitment we make at the federal level to show the rest of the country, quite frankly, that when anybody's in trouble, when anyone meets with disaster like we have, that the United States government will be there to help. That was uh, Hawaii U.S. Representative Jill Takuda reflecting on her first year in our nation's capital. We'll hear more right after a short break. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. HPR presents Kamaha'o Haumea Thronas. This concert is part of HPR's Mele Hawaii Performance Series. Kamaha'o is performing Saturday, February 10th at 6 p.m. and Sunday, February 11th at 2 p.m. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Let's get back to our conversation with uh, Hawaii Congresswoman Jill Takuda, who reflects on her first year in our nation's capital. From keeping the lights on in our federal agencies to the expulsion of Long Island Representative George Santos. It is very sad, quite frankly, right? When you really think about it, I mean, there's so much drama around it. And even after he left, so much, so much going on. But it is sad because as an institution, we need to hold ourselves to a high standard. Every single one of us, 435 of us, need to hold ourselves to the highest standards because that's what the American people, all of our constituents, expect and deserve, quite frankly. And so you never, it, it's never easy to take a vote like that. You know, even if you know, you know, without a doubt, you're going to vote in support of expelling an individual. And I remember when I was in the state Senate and having to disapprove a nominee, whether it's a judicial nominee or a cabinet nominee for a governor, um, you do it with a lot of reverence and humility in the sense that this is a human being. Even if they did wrong and they need to, to face this consequence to their actions, it is still a person and people around them. And, and so it's, it's with a lot of, I'm not sure what the right word is, but it's a solemn vote, an action that you take. There's no cheering. There's no happiness 
um, to losing someone or having to make that kind of call. And so I, I will say it was a very somber, a somber moment to, to cast that vote. Um, as assured as I was and how I was going to vote, it's still a somber vote. Um, and to me, it is a reminder to all of us, we've got to do our best. We've got to do better. The people deserve better than what, what happened in that moment of having to expel a member of Congress. Yeah, and I don't know what it was like for you um, being there, uh, you know, on the floor there in the Capitol, you know, on the anniversary of January 6th. I mean, mm -hmm. I just recall being in this room and watching it unfold on television. Yeah. But being there and just knowing, you know, that your fellow colleagues were in danger that day. Yeah. And many will still talk about it in terms of what they felt, what they experienced. There's so much trauma right, that still exists and fear that will come up when you have got, you know, reoccurring threats at the Capitol right now or warnings of potential danger or protests or whatnot. You see fear. You do see the fear in, in some of their eyes from what they experience. And I remember during orientation, we got to sit on the floor and I was there with my husband for the first time, right? They, they brought us in for the first time. We got to sit there. It was unofficial, obviously. And I will tell you what struck me is I looked at how close the doors were, the doors that were being banged on that got broken into to where you sit as members. It is actually for a, you know, a big chamber, you think, that can house that many people. It's small mm -hmm. and it's intimate. And to imagine that you have hundreds, thousands of people on the other side trying to clamoring to try and get into to this area with no good intention. And they're very public and verbal about it. It would have been terrifying. It must have been absolutely terrifying. And so I remember just sitting there in the in this in the chairs, thinking, "This is what it felt like, you know, to have anger and hate right there next to you, trying to get in at you, trying to flee that moment, you know, absolutely terrifying." And I remember watching it at home, like all of us back here yeah. in Hawaii, and just being absolutely. It was such a sad moment for me personally, having lived in D.C. You know, having been a part of government, you know, not knowing I was going to go to Congress, you know, in, in a couple of years, but really a sad day for democracy. And I think just, you know, really further strengthens all of our commitment that we will not see that happen again, whether it's in D.C. or any other capital across this country that has been threatened. And we've even seen it in Hawaii. Yes. Who would think it would cross the Pacific and come to Hawaii where we have threats against our capital? And, and now I'm having to go through a, a metal detector yes. at the Capitol. I know. I know. Uh, I was going to ask, what was that like for you, you know, coming home, you know, mm -hmm. for the opening of the legislature? I mean, you're not a part of that body anymore. But still very right. I, we're, we're always part of the I, I was considered myself a member of the Hawaii State Senate Ohana. That was 12 years of my life. My kids were literally born <laughs> in the state Senate and crawled on the floor of the chamber and ran through the halls. And, and now to see metal detectors and, and needing to show proof of ID and, and all this. And, and maybe some would say, hey, you should have been doing it before. Uh, but I, I do feel that Hawaii always felt that we had um, not just a commitment to openness, but that we could. Right. We, we could just come together because we had that sense of aloha and connection to each other that we didn't have to do that. We didn't have to go there. But sadly, sadly, we know now that um, that is not that is not the case. And, and yeah, so it was this a, little, is a reality. It was a reality. And it's, but it did hit me. It has hit me every time I've gone back to the Capitol for meetings with different members or for the governor or just the state of the state earlier this week. It does hit me that things have changed and not in a way I think any of us would have have wanted. I think it's still great that it is still very much open compared to other capitals. Um, but it's a somber reminder right there at the front uh, that we too here in Hawaii, we have to be vigilant and guard democracy because there are threats literally at the door. And then is there anything you want to say just about, I don't know, Red Hill or Anything on the horizon that, that you're looking to get behind any legislation in particular? Yeah. You know, I mean, first and foremost, we got to keep government running and open for business. I mean, such basic things when you think about it. Right. But but we absolutely have to without supplemental funding in so many ways, passing a budget, continuing to work towards a farm bill. We're a one year delayed at this point. I'm a member of the Agriculture Committee, so we have got to urgently seek that out. Um, we're coming up against fiscal year 25 appropriation bills that we've got to 
start negotiating and pass, but we haven't even closed 24. Uh, so there's so much basic work to do to make sure that the, the people of this country, the people of Hawaii don't suffer because we cannot come to basic agreements on funding important things. And, and for myself, it really comes down to making sure people have what they need so they do not continue to leave our shores. You know, you know, I have two teenage mm -hmm. sons. One's a 10th grader. And I worry when you go when he goes off to college, will he come home? Does he see that even as an option to live and work here in Hawaii? And I, and he's told me in the past, I don't think I, I can afford to. And it breaks your heart. And, you know, how do we make sure we have everything that people need to be able to continue to call Hawaii their home? Should they choose? Should they choose to and want to? And that's housing people can afford. I'm the, the co-chair of the Bipartisan Rural Health Caucus because too often as I travel through our district, access to the most basic health care, mental health services, it depends on where you live. And that's not right. That's absolutely not right that it depends on your zip code. If you have access to the basic care you need to take care of yourself and your loved ones, uh, you should be able to be born and, and be able to die with dignity in the place that you love. And, and for too many of our residents, that is not an option. From the most basic thing, can you travel somewhere to get it, to being able to afford it, to be able to access it. And so healthcare mental health services is a big one for me because I see so many disparities that exist throughout our communities. Um, and just making sure that, you know, at the end of the day, we support our farmers to put the food on our table, but can people afford it as well? And so I have been strongly advocating for changes at the USDA level on how SNAP money um, is accounted for. And, you know, this might come to a surprise for you but we base how much money people get on Honolulu grocery prices. You know, you go to any store, and I go to every store when I go to any island, any community, it costs more. It does cost more, especially for communities that have food deserts, quite frankly. And so I've been pushing through bills and letters, and the USDA is now re-looking at the pricing. You know, I think there needs to be price adjustments. So like Alaska, we have a rural and an urban uh, pricing for food yeah. because we know we know it costs more. Make it fair. Make it fair. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Representative Dakota, thank you so much for spending time with us thank and you. just sharing your thoughts, you know, as, as you reflect back on this incredible year. Absolutely. And let's hope it's a good year. We're going to make it a good year going forward. That was Representative Jill Takuda, who dropped by our studios yesterday afternoon. She's been meeting with community members across the state on Maui and the Big Island during this trip. And she heads back to D.C. next week. State lawmakers are holding a hearing today to talk about invasive species. Are we doing enough to stop the silent invasion? That's just one of the many agricultural priorities this legislative session. And HPR's Mark Liddell joins us in the studio. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have you on here. And and you have an interest in this area. You've been tracking a number of things. And uh, those creepy crawlers are a big concern. Yeah, I think last year, um, they've always been a concern, but I think last year put a big um, spotlight back on them. Uh, things like the coconut rhinoceros beetle, which spread to three different islands last year. There's the little fire ants that have been spreading around this island. Um, and then there was uh, the invasive coral out at Pearl Harbor. Um, just some of the recent things, but obviously invasive species have been a big problem for a long time. And I think this year, a lot of um, stakeholders and lawmakers are uh, interested in tackling that as a, as a problem this year. And, you know, we've heard a discussion about, you know, maybe we need to put more money uh, toward some of these issues, hire more staff. Yeah, the Department of Agriculture, um, one of its priorities this year is to make sure that it's plant quarantine staff, which inspects parcels to make sure that invasive species aren't moving around. Um, that is their priority to keep that staff funded or have their funding stabilized. Um, for the uh, Hawaii Farm Bureau, I think is one of the organizations that I talked to, they are also interested in beefing up Department of Agriculture's uh, uh, invasive species mitigation efforts. I had talked with uh, 
Brian Miyamoto, the executive director of the Hawaii Farm Bureau, and he said that for the Bureau, that is their number one priority. You know, what's been in the news a lot recently has been invasive species. Here on Oahu, we've seen a lot of coconut rhinoceros beetles, there's uh, little fire ants, there's even koki. Uh, We deal constantly with invasive species, but, you know, they've kind of come to the top here on Oahu with really coconut rhinoceros beetles kind of been in uh, something that we've seen all over the place. So we've got rosary parakeet, axis deer, uh, feral pigs. So there's a bunch of invasive species that we have. So uh, we're introducing a biosecurity bill this year. So that'll be our number one. And basically we're trying to provide appropriations for the State Department of Agriculture for their biosecurity program. Uh, you know, we need to give the Department of Agriculture the resources and the tools to help combat invasive species. Yeah, you know, I I always thought that someone someone needs to say, hey, we're losing the battle on this front. And, you know, <laughs> just to kind of uh, give us a, a reality check on uh, just how vulnerable we are. Yeah, and we really are. Uh, on the west side, I think, um, I was talking to the House of the or the chair of the House of um, Agriculture and Food Systems, um, it's Rep. Uh, Cedric Gates, and he said that coconut rhinoceros beetles are um, decimating the palms, the banana trees, uh, new um, out there. And, uh, you know, I think for a lot of people who don't live in areas where there's a lot of agriculture, um, it's hard for them to kind of visualize what's going on, but it's, it's, it's a big problem. And if it's a top priority for a lot of these t- stakeholders, then... I mean, you know it's a problem. Yeah, if they're attacking uh, the, the, the plants and the trees that we rely on for food. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are a number of other measures that uh, lawmakers are interested in supporting. Um, that, e- that includes funding for SNAP and Debucks, which provides uh, funding for low-income or food money for low-income families in Hawaii. There's uh, loan programs and tax credits for Farmers, uh, the Farm to School initiative within the DOE is a, is a big one too. Um, there's also a lot of interest in high-level planning. Um, uh, Senator uh, Mike Gabbard, who chairs the Senate Committee on Agriculture and Environment, his big thing is to form a sustainable food systems working group. Um, more planning would come in this uh, idea of having a Hawaii Farm Bill, which the DOA is interested in doing. Um, so is Vice Chair of the House uh, uh, Committee on Agriculture and um, Food Systems. That's a Representative Kristen Kahaloa. Um, that's something that she said is important to have uh, either this year or next year. One of the things I'm really excited for is several people are coming together to work with the Department of Ag to basically create a strategic plan, which will be called the Hawaii State Farm Bill. Because we're not at the start of the biennium, at the start of a budget year, we're taking this next year with the department to grow into what that plan is. But if we have a strong strategic plan with the funding requests that the department needs, what we're hoping is to then build into strong funding requests because we've passed a a farm bill, similar to what the federal government does. And there's several states that do them as well. Yeah, we've got to focus on resiliency. Yeah, um, just a a couple of other things. Uh, Aquaculture is sort of a big agricultural sector, and there's a lot of interest in supporting that. Um, And there's also interest in something called restorative aquaculture, which is using um, environmentally friendly um, uh, species like shellfish and seaweed. Yeah, lots of uh, innovative ideas out there, so hopefully we can uh, corral those and parlay them into moneymakers. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, but thank you so much, Mark. We've been talking to HPR's Mark Liddell about our state's legislative priorities when it comes to agriculture. This week on Science Friday... 
Prescriptions for ADHD medications spiked at the height of the COVID pandemic, especially for people assigned female at birth, including women and some trans folks. But why? The pandemic was just this big wind gust that brought it all down and revealed a lot of the challenges that had already been there to begin with. That's on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Bob Thurman, author of Man of Peace. I'm here next time talking about loving your enemies and how the Dalai Lama can inspire joyous resistance to negativity in society. Sunday at 11. Happy Braille Day, everybody. At this hour, the Hawaii Library System is celebrating the man behind the Braille Code. Frenchman Louis Braille lost his eyesight at age five, but went on to invent a system of raised dots that would open the world to the visually impaired. We talked to State Librarian Stacey Aldrich about technological advances for the blind and for all patrons in this digital age. Our Library for the Blind and Print Disabled, which many people may not know about, is a library service that's provided here in Hawaii to ensure that everybody, even if you have physical challenges reading standard print, has access to reading stories and finding information. So it's a program that you can sign up for. They are actually celebrating the 200th anniversary of Braille. We're really excited to be able to celebrate Louis Braille because... The Braille format was a technology that opened the world to people who were blind or had low vision where they could actually read. The one thing we're very excited about now is, and it is part of a national service, so the National Library Service out of the Library of Congress. It's the federal service that provides all the materials and all the books for people to read. They have now just provided e-Braille readers. So these tiny little readers that can send the electronic book to the reader and the person who reads Braille basically can feel the letters. They, they, they pop up <laughs> on the Braille reader so that they can read ebooks. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity to kind of showcase just the whole age that we're into now. Because we saw what happened with the pandemic, uh, I'm sure you watched your uh patrons, you know, get into ebooks and streaming just because, you know, our library facilities weren't really open. When it was difficult to get to the library or people were still concerned about being around other people, digital was fantastic. So we had not, before the pandemic, had more than a million circulations of the ebooks that we have available in our, our, our library. And this past year alone, our circulation is up. 15%. So we went over a million, just over a million during the pandemic. And now we're, this past year, we were at 1.3 million circulations of ebooks, audiobooks, and magazines. So our circulation is going up <laughs> for all of our e resources. And so, yeah, what else do you think would be important for patrons to know if, if folks haven't gone that route? You're trying to make mm-hmm. it as easy as you can for everybody. Oh, it's super easy. You can just go to your local app and download the Libby app, and then you log in through Libby using your library card, and then you can download ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and we have fiction, nonfiction, we have cookbooks, and there's no due date <laughs> that you have to worry about in terms of paying a finer fee. So after the 21 days, if nobody's waiting, you can renew. If there's somebody waiting, then you can get back in line, but it'll just stop working so you can't read it anymore unlike the physical books which you have to make sure you get back on time for the due date so super easy to use if you're not really into reading ebooks i would recommend audiobooks they're a fantastic way to connect to great stories but to maybe also get through some nonfiction books as well they're good for commutes and for when you're cleaning the house or cooking <laughs> So again, free with your library card. And we have over 200,000 ebooks and e-audiobooks available for checkout. And so talk about how the libraries, you know, segue into this digital world, you know, because there are many of us who still love, you know, to smell the mm-hmm. book, the printed page. Uh, so mm-hmm. how, how have you been able to, you know, straddle those worlds? It is a challenge. Physical is still very popular. Last year, we circulated more than 3.6 million physical items. 
So physical is still very important to people. We know physical is really important to small children and families and they're reading together. And so we try to find the mix. And it's really interesting because I usually ask people, which I should ask you, which do you prefer, an ebook or a physical book, which you basically said you like paper. But when I ask this question of people, because I'm the same way, I, I, I like paper, there's a large number of people that I've asked, from Keiki to Kapuna, which do you prefer? Most people prefer paper. We're in a space where we want to make sure that people have the, the format that works best for them, but we also want to make sure that there are opportunities to expand our collection into places that maybe we can't get all of the physical items to be available. And so by having digital, it also expands our collection for our neighbor islands. You know, I, I think I saw something come across my desk about how there were a couple of libraries that were going to be closed because there were going to be some technological upgrades. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're upgrading our entire system to use RFID. So all of our books are being tagged with RFID so that we can implement new security gates and to implement new self-checkouts and technology that will make it more efficient for our staff. So with RFID, if you take a stack of books that you're going to check out, you'll be able to walk up to the self-check, place them all on the self-check machine, wave your library card, and all the items will check out without you having to one by one scan each barcode. So it's super efficient. It makes it a lot easier behind the scenes for checking things in and out. Nanakuli was our first library that we put RFID in. And so we're very excited that all of our libraries are upgrading to this technology to make it easier for our patrons to get in and out and get the books that they want. For those of us who are not familiar with RFID, what does it stand for? Uh, Radio Frequency Identification. They're like the, yeah, they're like those little tags that when you buy something in a store, they're square, and then they have like a little antenna inside. Okay, and so those are in use in most of the libraries now? We're close to getting all of our libraries tagged, and we're in the process of installing all the new equipment. What else is on the landscape? Well, we're excited that we've been expanding our digital services since we know e- ebooks and e-magazines have been so popular. During the pandemic, we added to our collection Canopy, which are streaming movies. So with your library card, you can stream all kinds of movies, award winners. It's pretty exciting. And you can use it through your Roku, your Apple TV, your phone, your tablet, your PC. So we're very excited about that. We've also been adding some more learning opportunities for the community. So we have a service called Skill Finder that allows you to find free courses to take if you want to upskill some of the technical skills that you have. So if you're interested in doing web pages, learning HTML, you can use Skill Finder to help find those. Or if you want to learn skills, how to be a manager of IT, Agile is a form of management. You can take classes for that. So there's, there's a lot of courses that you can take for free just through going through the website. I don't know. Any final thoughts that you would just want to share with listeners? I think if you haven't visited the library recently, I'd encourage you to, to come back and check out all the different programs that we have. For During the pandemic, we didn't have as many programs, but we're back to doing more free programs within the libraries. We have lots of story times. We have mahjong classes. You name it. We have a, a films being shown. There's just so many opportunities to gather your family together and go to the library for free activities. And also remember that there's these great resources available and all you need to do is, if you can't make it to the library, our digital doors are open to you. So uh, come and visit us and use (laughs) the New York Times. You can read that for free. You can read thousands of newspapers and magazines through Press Reader. You can download movies, you can download eBooks. So there's a little bit of something for everybody, physical and digital. All right, but I like that. Your digital doors are always open. <laughs> Thank you so mm-hmm. much, Stacy, for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, well, we'll, we'll hopefully we will get more of our, our listeners out there to the library if they haven't uh, been there for a while. But thanks again. Thank you. 
That was Stacy Aldrich, state librarian, who at this hour is taking part in a celebration of World Braille Day at the Library for the Visually Impaired, which, by the way, is adjacent to the Waikiki Branch Library on Kapahulu Avenue here on Oahu. Aldrich is encouraging library patrons to come see its growing digital collections, which includes access to not just e-books and audiobooks and other streaming services to watch movies or learn new digital skills. As she says, their digital doors are always open. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. One of my favorite new shows is The Curse. It's about the sinister side of home improvement TV, but it's also about the difference between wanting to do good and wanting to seem good. It's weird because when somebody's trying so hard to be good, it makes you feel really disgusting. Co-creator Benny Safty on Chasing Moral Purity. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Honolulu Waldorf School and Nohea Gallery. Zealand rock band Unknown Mortal Orchestra is playing a show here on Oahu this weekend. The award-winning group is fronted by Ruben Nielsen. Nielsen was raised in New Zealand, the home of his Maori father, but he also has ties to Hawaii. His mother is native Hawaiian. She grew up in the islands and was named Miss Alohahula in 1974. Nielsen was raised in a musical family. His father, Chris, is a jazz musician. His brother, Cody, plays drums in a band. The Conversations Russell Subiano got a chance to talk to Ruben as he was preparing for tomorrow night's concert. Was it just a kind of a natural thing for you to become a musician or did you kind of have to find your own path to it? I felt like when I was growing up, I didn't want to be a musician. My goal was to be a visual artist and I grew up like wanting to do comics and when I was a teenager, I wrote graffiti and then when I left high school, I went to art school. So I went to study painting and so i was kind of really obsessed with like drawing and art and graffiti and all these and comic books and all this stuff and i just thought somehow i was going to end up doing something visual but during art school my brother started a band and i kind of joined the band just because i felt like i was like, good at organizing stuff and good at helping stuff i was like i'll get my brother set up because he's such a talented musician and then I'll help him do his thing. And once it's up and running, I'll, go, I'll get back to my own life, you know. <laughs> and after art school, I started this band and I was working for an artist, like as an artist assistant. And the band, I was in a punk band with my brother. And then it just kind of um, went well enough that I just kind of got drawn into music more and more. And it's, you know, and now, <laughs> and then I tried to leave it again. And like, I, whenever I tried to leave music, it kind of um, pulls me back in. I just kind of escape. <laughs> I've listened to a lot of your music in preparation for this interview. And while listening to your Tiny Desk concert, it kind of finally hit me where I felt your musical vibe before. And I'm not one to try and fit anybody into a particular box. The vibe I got listening to the Tiny Desk concert was kind of the same one I remember getting when listening to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Band. And so I was curious, you know, who are your musical influences? Well, well, I guess, you know, growing up, I was exposed to a lot of music, quite diverse music. My dad, you know, I grew up around jazz and stuff like kind of Steely Dan and was kind of the most pop thing that my dad would listen to. And then 
my mom was she listened to a lot of Hawaiian music and like pop music and R&B and stuff like that. My parents didn't listen to the Beatles when I was growing up because I think my dad was like too advanced as a musician to listen to anything that was very pop. And my mom was really into Hawaiian stuff. So the Beatles were, you know, like around, like I knew, of course, who they were. They were sort of in everything, you know, like my Uncle Walter would cover John Lennon songs and stuff like that. So I, I knew all about them, but I just kind of took them for granted. And it wasn't until I actually started playing bands myself that I discovered the Beatles. And so I kind of got into them in a different way. Like there was something that I got into when I kind of thought that everybody was, was done with them and wasn't listening to them anymore, if that makes sense. So I got into psychedelic music and Jimi Hendrix, you know, all that kind of like 60s music after I had already started playing in bands and stuff like that. And to me, it felt kind of obscure because it was so old. The music was so old. So by the time I was starting uh, a Mortal Orchestra and writing these kind of uh, psychedelic songs, I didn't really think anybody was going to be interested in it. I just kind of thought of it as a hobby. Like I was collecting old records and and writing songs in the style of, like an old style of rock and roll that people didn't really listen to anymore. But yeah, the Beatles are a huge influence. Like I, I remember the Beatles were the first band that when I really listened to their song, I would think like, how did they come up with this stuff, you know? All the chord changes and the melodies and stuff like that. The song of yours that has the most streams on Spotify is so good at being in trouble. has something like 174 million streams. It has more streams than all the other songs on the album combined. And it seems to be about someone reflecting on a broken relationship, maybe even regretting that it ended. And I love the line from the chorus, you know, so good at being in trouble, so bad at being in love. Can you talk about where that song came from? I was at a party. It was in, in Los Angeles. I think it was like the second time I've been to Los Angeles or something. And I was at some party and everybody was staying up all night. And there was this kind of like annoying girl who just kept talking and talking. <laughs> and she was like talking about her life. And then she, um, at one point, you know, I was hanging out there with some other songwriters, like some other bands and stuff. And, and at one point she said, that she was so good at being in trouble. And then my ears perked up because I was getting really bored of this conversation that we were all having to hear. And then, and then it, to me, it just like, as soon as she said it, it felt like a song. And I like looked around because I knew there were other people that wrote songs. And everyone was like, what are you, what's this look on your face? I think, but because to me, it was just kind of like, oh, can I have that? Nobody else heard what I heard. I just heard like, oh, that's, I, I can write a great song starting with that line, you know? And so I just remembered it, I, you know, I wrote it down somewhere and then, you know, just channeling like relationships of my life and just kind of trying to, um, you know, I was in a certain mood and yeah. And I just, I don't know. It was just one of those songs that when I finished it, I, I didn't know I was going to change my life the way that it did, but I, I knew I had written like a good song. I was like, oh, this is a good one. And um, actually this year I, did, I got a, a gold record plaque for that, wow. that song. Yeah, I would have never thought that that record would go gold, but, you know, eventually it did. And that's kind of like, almost like accidentally. <laughs> your father is Maori and your mother is Hawaiian. Those cultures are so, so similar to each other. I was just curious as to how those cultures shaped your music and your home life. It's weird because I don't speak Maori or Hawaiian. <laughs> um, I think the generation that my parents were and the generation that I, uh, the, the environment that I grew up in 
it was just the beginning of the Hawaiian Renaissance and things like that. So it was a strange time to grow up Polynesian in New Zealand. Looking back on it, I realized, you know, there's a lot of things that I realize now were probably, you know, like aspects of my childhood that I, I can identify now as racism. <laughs> that, that, that at the time, I didn't really see it that way. You know, like it, it was it was just life. But in terms of music, I definitely feel like I was at least exposed a lot to my mom's culture through osmosis. Like my mom was a former Miss Aloha Hula, studied with Johnny Lumho, and she left Hawaii with us to raise us in New Zealand and listened to a lot of Hawaiian music and then later got really into Kapahaka, which is you know, the Maori dancing and, and songs and stuff. And so, yeah, I grew up around a lot of that. And, you know, when uh, I didn't realize till um, later growing up that my mom was making us Hawaiian staples for mm-hmm. food, but like she didn't tell us that what she was feeding us was kind of like a New Zealand adaptation of Hawaiian food, if that makes sense. So it was like, uh, it wasn't until I reconnected with my Hawaiian family in my adult life and and going back to Hawaii and stuff and meeting my uncle in Portland and and my cousins in Portland that I realized like, oh, I've been, I've been eating Hawaiian food my whole life. But, you know, I didn't realize it. I thought everybody in New Zealand was eating hot dogs and rice, (laughs) spam and pork and beans and stuff like that, stuff like that, that I thought. I didn't realize it was Hawaiian, and and then I asked people in New Zealand, "Did you eat this growing up?" And realized, like, yeah, they really didn't. So I, you know, it's it's weird. It's like I, I didn't realize how Hawaiian my upbringing really was because my mom didn't really like say like, "Oh, this is what we used to eat growing up," or whatever, you know. And like, so I didn't realize everybody else wasn't eating uh, kimchi and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right now, well, thanks so much for your time, Ruben. Really enjoy talking to you. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was Hawaiian Maori musician Ruben Nielsen talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. When Nielsen isn't touring uh, or at home in Portland, he spends time with his mother's family in Hilo. His band, Unknown Mortal Orchestra, is playing a show at the Republic tomorrow night. If you're interested in more information, we'll have a link on the conversation page of our website after the show. That is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we plan to talk Hawaii history at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco. It's where King David Kalakaua spent his last hours. This month is the anniversary of the monarch's death. Caller Talk Backline, leave us some feedback. What do you think about the threats to our state from invasive critters? What's bugging you? Call 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find the conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast store. Our program is produced by Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Savannah Harriman Pote. Backyard quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. <laughs>